Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My 7 Wonders. Now, since the dawn of time, the greatest structures, monuments, and other mighty works of mankind have been celebrated as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week, and deadly sins, there are always seven of them. In ancient times, the seven wonders featured hanging gardens, a couple of large statues, a great pyramid, and a lighthouse. A more modern list of wonders includes the Empire State Building, the Taj Mahal, and the Great Wall of China. And then there are the seven natural wonders, such as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and the Grand Canyon in America, and so on. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? Well, that's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the person I'm asking today is the archaeologist and anthropologist, broadcaster and writer, Mary Ann Ohota. For the last few years, Mary Ann has presented or co-presented a whole range of television programs, such as Time Team with Tony Robinson on Channel 4, Britain's Secret Treasures and Britain's Secret Homes on ITV. Her latest book is called Secret Britain, so obviously there's always a good chance of learning something new, surprising or covered up when Marianne is on the case. Marianne has also explored Britain's puzzling history and prehistory in a couple of excellent series for the Smithsonian Channel called Mystic Britain. On these, she's been helped or hampered by presenting the series alongside me, but Marianne, we can come to our winter months exploring damp bits of Britain, uncovering old bones and ruined buildings. I know that's all bread and butter to you. I'm fascinated to discover, though, what you regard as wonders. In fact, I was half expecting this to be entirely made up of archaeological sites you visited in Britain, with or indeed without me. But you're a bit more wide-ranging than that, aren't you? Well, I, I tried to I tried to keep it in chat, Clive, because I, I could definitely spend about a week talking about all the wonders, not just seven, all of the wonders of um, Britain's uh, magical past. But I've, I've yes, you're, I've, I've tried to I've tried to broaden broaden my and your horizons with this list. <laughs> well, you're certainly going to do that. But I will ask you, uh, in, if I may, in due course, as to what what first attracted you to the wonders of uh, British archaeology. But uh, I think you're. Your first wonder takes us uh, beyond the seas. Yes, that's right. So my first wonder is the Taj Mahal. So it's kind of pretty common or garden on, on lists of wonders. I think it was on the list of new wonders that was proposed and ratified by the world a few years ago. Um, this extraordinary masterpiece of Mughal architecture on the banks of the River Yamuna in Agra in India. But for me, it isn't because it's this amazing, you know, testament to human ingenuity, creativity, religious zeal, love for your wife, all the rest of it, blah, blah, blah. For me, it was the place that I had a really nice mango ice cream at the age of five. Oh, right. <laughs> well, I, I, want, I will perhaps do more than just the, uh, the ice cream, um, <laughs> but I wonder what you do make of something like this at the age of five. I mean, I, I suppose almost everybody's heard of the Taj Mahal. I, I have to admit, I haven't been there. Um, and I thought I'd better just check exactly where it was. So I looked up, you know, Taj Mahal map and I put that into my, you know, search engine and it came up with all the Indian restaurants in London, which <laughs> happened to be called Taj Mahal. But, so you were taken uh, to, to India as a child. Was this a holiday or a, a family jaunt or, or what? So my mum and her family are Indian and she grew up in um, Bombay, as it was then Mumbai now. Um, and... So I think regularly my my life growing up has been punctuated by visits to India and going to see family, but also, you know, traveling a bit a bit more widely, sometimes with the family from India, because it's an opportunity for everyone to have a holiday. And I think that's definitely that fostered um, a love and interest in all the different myriad ways that people can live their lives um, and to sort of see beyond what would have otherwise been sort of lower middle class, perfectly reasonable and not particularly interesting, uh, you know, uh, childhood in Cheshire 
um, going to a perfectly normal school and doing all the rest of the things that all my other classmates were doing. But instead of going to Lanzarote and coming back with them, necklaces with those sweeties on that you know all the girls in my class would distribute as kind of tokens of of um affiliation with their friends i'd i'd be taken off on a holiday to india and i wouldn't have much to show for it well there's things you can bring back from india so so your mother's your mother's from india and i think your father's polish is that right yeah that's right so his family uh, came to britain after the war so his parents came here after the war um so I think definitely sort of having different perspectives, different languages, different cultures, and then finding those um, commonalities between them, that's definitely shaped, um, I guess, my perspective. Um, but, yeah. So you you, uh, you didn't really like, um, you didn't especially like the Taj Mahal, but it... But no, do you think I saw seeing... the, the ancient rock-cut caves of Ajanta and Ellora. Meh, wasn't bothered. I mean, I've been since, and it's amazing. Did, it, did the Taj Mahal anyway nudge you towards being interested in historical things. I suppose in terms of the things you often study, Taj Mahal's quite recent. I mean, you're more sort of prehistory rather than, I mean, that's that's only a few centuries ago, Taj Mahal. It's oh, the, the paint is barely dry. Um, I, I think I think it probably did because I think there's, you know what it does? It, it establishes very early on the idea that these are places that are open to you that you are entitled to visit and spend time at and I think that's really crucial because I think some families growing up it's it's perfectly normal to go to museums and galleries and historic sites and have memberships to this that and the other kind of you know historic society or what have you and then for other families it it isn't and it just feels alien and a thing that other people do and so I think that Going to these sites when you can't really remember them, and you and you, or the only thing you do remember is getting a balloon or a fridge magnet or something like that. I think they are valuable. I think they just embed in you an idea that this is your heritage on whatever either abstract or, or you know tenuous level that it's yours to to be explored as and when you choose to. A land that is filled with wondrous tales of rajas and sultans and their beautiful queens. The most enchanting of them all takes place here by the shimmering Yamuna River. It's about a dashing young emperor, his beautiful princess, and amazing monument. The Taj Mahal. This is a love story. All right, well, I want, I want to move you on to your second uh, wonder because that, that does fit in with the theme as, uh, as you've started with a couple of uh, ancient, and this is a more ancient site, though, isn't it? Uh, number two. How do you pronounce it? Kalanish? Kalanish. Well, Kalanish. I, I pronounce it Kalanish. Yeah. I don't know what the, the Gaelic... Is it Gaelic? Gal- it's a good Gaelic question. in the west of Scotland, yeah. Okay, well, there we go. I mean, it's a good start, isn't it? Okay, so tell, well, this... tell us what they are. Tell us what they are because you don't you do know all about them. I do. Okay, so Callanish is this extraordinary site. It's on a promontory on the Isle of Lewis, which is one of the islands of the Outer Hebrides, and the Outer Hebrides are off on the northwest coast of Scotland, sort of beyond Sky. They're they're on the way to St Kilda, which is on the way to America or Greenland, um, and they're they're kind of really remote. Have you have you ever been, Clive? I have, yes. Uh, but uh, so they're they're a little bit like Stonehenge. There's they're standing stones arranged in a in a circle and a, and a pattern. But uh, is that is a bit uh, sort of uh, philistine of me to say it's like Stonehenge? They're, they're probably very different to to your mind. No, I think they are like Stonehenge. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that if Callanish, this so Callanish one is the kind of the centerpiece. Uh, which is a stone circle, as you describe, with a central monolith, which is absolutely enormous. It's about five metres high. And then radiating radiating out to the cardinal points are lines of stones. So single lines of stones to the south, the east and the west, and then a paired avenue of stones that goes out towards the north. And I think you're absolutely right to sort of say it's a bit like Stonehenge because it is a bit like Stonehenge. If it were closer to London or a major airport, as many people would visit it as Stonehenge because it's it's remarkable. It's it's really compelling. And often when you go, you're you're one of a handful of other people uh, visiting. 
Well, I, I mean, it sort of applies to Stonehenge as well, but it certainly applies to these sort of sites on Lewis or or Orkney or or Scotland generally. They appear to be very remote places, and you can scarcely imagine people eking out a living um, in in prehistoric times, let alone having the resources to build something like this for whatever reason they built. And do we know why Callanish was built, or was is it? Oh, it's, it's, it's the eternal question of why. Um, well, I think, so uh, the dating for Callanish 1 um, is f- something between 2600, 2900 BC. Um, so it makes it a little bit older than Stonehenge. The stone settings that we see at Stonehenge now, you know, the, the lintels, the circle with the, the, the stones sitting up on top, um, they date from about 2500 BC. But across this period, which is the, the end of the Stone Age, the late Neolithic, the weather was slightly better. So those, so those kind of um, uh, Hebridean landscapes that we imagine now where there's a thick layer of peat and there's a, you, know, you, can, you can sustain a few cows that manage to kind of not get their feet too wet as the, as the, as the waters rise. It wasn't. It wasn't really like that in the late Neolithic. It was more. Um, it was a fer- more fertile landscape, so that they could farm and they they would have had surplus. But of oh, course, that's fantastic. You're right. That's that's so typical. Uh, I go to Scotland a lot, and uh, it's usually raining. And but people there, oh, you should have been here last week. It was beautiful last week. So <laughs> so in these terms, you know, you can go there now and say, well, it's a bit peaty and damp and windswept. Oh, you should have been here five thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah. It was fantastic. Then. It was great. Loads of shellfish. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, local produce, all very seasonal. Yeah. But what draws you to this sort of thing? Because this has become your uh, career, really, um, studying. It could be old bones that have been dug up. It can be stones which have been erected for reasons which we can only really speculate about. What, what was it? Were you always interested in this or was it a flash of inspiration when you were you know, filling in your form to go to university? Oh, archaeology and anthropology. <laughs> I'll, I'll try that. That, that. You know, nobody else is doing that. What, what, what was the motivation? So I studied archaeology and anthropology at uh, university and I I had in my mind from being a sort of 14-year-old that I wanted to go to Cambridge and I don't know why particularly that got into my head and I I had enough sort of academic chops that that wasn't totally out of the ballpark and I think probably having that cross-cultural heritage and then being interested in people for a long time I wanted to be a vet because I do like animals but then I realised that most of the time you spend kind of, you know, dealing with overweight cats or, you know, castrating puppies or what have or you. Or putting which... them down when they're old. <laughs> yeah, which is that's a bit true. De- depressing a bit, for, a bit depressing for all concerned, yeah. And the thing that I realised that I particularly liked about veterinary medicine wasn't the kind of the 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 science behind the drugs or, or anything like that. It was the kind of the interactions between people and animals. And I thought, oh, and then, you know, as you do when you're a teenager and you think that you've kind of got, you know, the world is your oyster intellectually and, you know, physically. Um, I kind of thought, oh, well, no, that's very fascinating. I wonder if people have always had that same relationship with animals, blah, 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 and realised that that was actually probably anthropology rather than veterinary science. Yes. So but then that, I had anthrop- to study archaeology. I had to study archaeology and anthropology in, uh, together as a joint degree in order to go to Cambridge. They've actually changed the degree course now, so you don't have to study archaeology. So it was kind of an accident because I wasn't that I wasn't that fussed about archaeology. I thought I found it interesting, but I wouldn't have selected it as a degree. We've strayed a bit away from uh, the standing stones, but uh, uh, I, I you asked if I've been there, and I have, and, and a friend of mine has also been there, and he can't stay there he gets a sort of like an electric charge off or and that's the best way i can describe it off these stones and he's not someone prone to you know that that sort of uh, sensitive feeling about most things but he generally finds it too disturbing so goodness only knows what sort of stones and why they are arranged but uh... i think it is it is an extraordinary place the best I mean, I would say the best guess, but um, based on the archaeological research that's been done, which is quite extensive now at Callanish, it does appear to be an observatory that's or a, a temple that is particularly aligned to movements of the moon. And one of the most compelling alignments is, <laughs> bear with me, Clive, I know you're a rationalist, um, is the the lowest, the point at which the moon is lowest in the sky, a full moon, which happens every 18.6 years. And that's, I mean, it does sound bonkers, the very idea that a bunch of, 
you know, subsistence farmers at the far edge of the northwest of Scotland, A, have the time and resources to to build this massive stone monument, but also to align it perfectly to something that happens once every evening, every two decades or so. Because it's you know it's not always sunny up there, no, um, but apparently that a lot of effort to be... for just <laughs> spotting where the moon's going to be every every couple of decades. But I kind of guess I think that probably means that they were worshiping the moon in some way, or the moon is a a kind of a cipher or a representative of the gods or the goddesses, and so it's not just the moon. You know, it's like oh yeah, there there's, there's the moon where we thought it was going to be, but it's something about the moon visiting Earth, and there's really intriguing. Um, clues in in actual um classical documents where um there's descriptions of the hyperboreans who are this race of distant people who live beyond the north wind and they have a sacred precinct aligned or or kind of in honor or worship of the moon and you kind of go could they be describing kalanish could there have been travelers in the ancient lands who heard about this place or or knew about this place while while sailing around the coast and went Oh, this these are the Hyperboreans. These are the people who live beyond the North Wind. Yeah, it's, uh, it, I think I suppose the great thing about archaeology is you you never quite get to a final answer, do you? Because there's always a chance that some new way of analysing the material might uh, blow your theory out the water. And even if that doesn't come along, there's always room for another theory when something else can be factored in. I think that's true. But I think the thing about archaeology as well is that it doesn't lie in the way that historical documents lie, because, you know, history is always written with with an angle, with an edge. Whereas the archaeology, when you kind of strip it back to the data, no one's making that up. There's no critique to it. And so everyone's starting with the same raw material. And then you can analyse and interpret and, and then critique and kind of um, interrogate that analysis equally. It is, of course, the rocks below, which give the island's countryside its special character. These are the oldest rocks in Britain, and during the Ice Age, huge glaciers pushed over them, grinding away their surface and leaving behind in places a layer of clay. On this better soil, you find small farms or crops. So having mentioned some animals, let's go on to your wonder number three. What's that? That is dogs. Now, I think dogs truly are, and you're a dog fan as well, aren't you? I am, yes, yeah. Dogs are truly one of the wonders of the world. Um, you know, they've been, we, we've we've evolved with them. They're one of the earliest domesticates. But specifically, I, I absolutely love my dog and he makes my life much, much better. And I think that he's generally in the, I apologise to all the people he's stolen sandwiches from or kind of <laughs> slobbered over over the years. But he's he's generally a force for good in the world. And he's quite elderly now. So What I, sort I, of I, dog is he and what's he called? So he's a chocolate Labrador. Uh, he's called Harpo. He's now 11 and a bit. And he's a bit dodgery and bits of him are falling off and all the rest of it. Um, now, and, why is he uh, called Harpo? Is that because you wanted a quiet dog, so you you went for the silent Marx brother to give him his name? Uh, he is named after the silent Marx brother. Um, we got him as a rescue at about ten months, and he was um, he was he was he was wild. He was he was an absolute he was a right silly Billy. Um, the people who had him before. I think got a cute brown puppy, you know, kind of a brown version of the Andrex puppy. And then it turned into this enormous, you know, 35 kilo, young adult, athletic, full of energy dog. And they didn't quite realise how much effort and energy that and time that takes up. Um, so they realised they needed to rehome him. So we got him when he was kind of a, you know, a kind of wayward adolescent um, who just had worked out that he was quite big and quite smart and if he moved fast enough then he could mostly outfox the humans that he'd been in contact with so i've been watching the dog whisperer you know that tv show with caesar milan and kind of going oh i can do this i'm at one with the animal kingdom thinking that it would be some kind of miraculously miraculous transformation of this dog from you know mad dog to harpo friendly and kind of amusing you know comically and charming uh you know, a physical comic. Um, it probably took about a year, I think, for him to really, uh, you know, get with the program to, to yeah, sign I think, up. I think they are a bit uh, chocolate Labradors. I think are a bit because Labradors are quite uh, compliant dogs. But I think the chocolate element, the way they had to get that, I think that made them a bit madder. 
So well, they say that, but I think someone else told me that in Labrador litters of puppies, you get all three colours and it's just a kind of a quirk of, you know, whether you've got blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes or hazel eyes. So the, the poor old brown ones, uh, you're just being racist, Clive, is what you're being dog racist. <laughs> I hope not. But I thought, that I, th- <laughs> I thought they brought in um, like Doberman jeans or something like that to uh, to, to bring in the no, brown colour. But, I don't uh, think so. No, yeah. I think they're, they're kind of, um, I think there's just a, it's a, like it's like revels, isn't it? You don't know which one you're going to get. <laughs> anyway, you're obviously like, you know, Harpo and dogs generally. And, and of course, it does link in with your archaeological career. As you say, the dogs have been with humans for, is it? thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, the first animal domesticated. You can find buried puppies, buried adult dogs with with people. So they've been, humans and dogs have been close together for a long time. Yeah, there's um, there's another site in in my new book, Secret Britain, um, a site called Must Farm, uh, which is in Cambridgeshire, and it's this extraordinary site in in bron- um, from the Bronze Age, and just because of a quirk of the preservation, because it's quite a waterlogged area, all the organic material has survived, and what it appears to be is a sort of some kind of disaster where these wooden roundhouses have burned down and collapsed on the spot that they were standing. Um, but inside the houses were all the, the the household utensils, the weapons, the all the kind of the day-to-day stuff. There were intact pottery vessels still with people's porridge in them that has all just been preserved because it was burned and then dropped into the, this kind of waterlogged landscape. And then nothing was salvaged. So we don't really know what happened to the people. But one of the things they discovered in Must Farm were um, Bronze Age dog poos so they knew they had dogs. And from studying these corporalites, that's the posh word, but studying the dog poo, they, they discovered that the dogs were eating the same food as the humans. So they were probably being fed table scraps, which I think is lovely. The very idea that Harpo begging for scraps from our table is a is you know fundamentally a, an ancestral right of his. Yes, <laughs> part of the tradition. And it, it, it does, that does just a hint to the clue of the glamour of archaeology that uh, a study is made of dog poo uh, from (laughs) an ancient site to work out what was being fed. Yeah, it's not all frescoes and mosaics. Yeah, a lot of it is shit. Yeah. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Okay, Marion, let's move on to number four, which I suppose shouldn't come close to dog in the list, uh, but it does. So so let's let's do it now. Number four. So number four is Cadbury's Fruit and Nut. Um, it has to specifically be a 200 gram bar, please. You know, one of those big bars, not a little bar. That doesn't count. Um, this is well, my... I say it shouldn't come close together because uh, for some reason, dogs aren't supposed to have chocolates. It's alleged to be very poisonous to them. I must, I must say that my dog frequently manages to get his hand or his, or his mouth on chocolate and has survived uh, pretty well so far. I think it gives them liver poisoning or something. I think it is quite bad. <laughs> yeah, well, you're like, more than 15 whatever, years old. It's so it fine. Hasn't, it hasn't knocked him. He's, he's had to come through a few Easters, you know, where, where there's too much chocolate lying around. Anyway, so Cadbury's Fruit and Nut. 
Uh, now, why why fruit and nut? Is that it, you want a bit of health with your chocolate, the fruit and nut, or no? <laughs> that would be that would be stretching, wouldn't it? Um, no, Cadbury's fruit and nut is reliably sweet and uncomplicated in its palate. You don't get tasting notes, do you, with a Cadbury's fruit and nut? Like this fancy single origin, you know, handmade chocolate stuff. My husband's to- really into really posh chocolate. He's got a chocolate subscription by some chocolate artisan. And I'm just not, I just can't be bothered with it because it's about seven quid for a, for a bar. And I'm like, I just, a bar of Cadbury's fruit and nut will do me fine. And it's the thing that I take on adventures or expeditions with me. That's my little treat that I know tastes like home. Tastes, it's, it's a very um, grounding uh visceral experience for me eating Cadbury's well, that's, fruit and nut. Well, that's a very interesting. I wondered why Cadbury's fruit and nut was appearing. And it's it's interesting that your husband has an interest in more, I know, refined chocolate, uh, more, you know, and you're, you're fighting against that. Um, he's, he's, so quite, is... he's quite, he's quite a fancy man. Uh, I mean, he's very well, he's very well dressed. He's got, he's got all these I mean, basically, what is described in in our chocolate preferences, it follows through in many other elements of our life together. So he's got lots of fancy face cream, for example, and I've got um, like a a tub of of the stuff that was most recently on offer in the supermarket. Okay. Um, So you met at Cambridge, I think. Yes, we did. Yeah. So we met in the first week at um, in the bar at Emmanuel College. So we both went to Emmanuel College, which was... Was he an archaeologist and anthropologist as well? Or no, else? he's a philosopher, which I think that he probably thinks he is as well still. So he's now a writer. But yeah, uh, so he studied philosophy and I studied archaeology and we, were, we had um, rooms on adjoining staircases um, in the, the kind of the, uh, the student halls. And he was on the ground floor and his, he always had his windows open. He always had the lights on all day and all night. So his kind of room became the, the kind of hangout room. Um, so we got chatting. And you're still and, hanging out with him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> For, <laughs> all, these all these years later, 21 years later. Yes. Isn't that extraordinary? I don't understand how I'm that old, I'll be honest. <laughs> it's, it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, these these... Time estimates are just estimates. In the world they are, they are. Yeah, yeah, there's standard deviations to account for. And I'm, I am obviously aiming for a, um, a kind of a white marble um, mausoleum on the banks of a river. <laughs> That's a very, but That's his favourite wife so far. But, <laughs> but it sounds like he can get away with just commemorating you with some, let's say, and I don't, this is a put down, a cheap chocolate can be used <laughs> rather than having to invest in. Yeah, but once I'm dead, I can't eat the chocolate, so he needs to step up the game. Yeah. Well, well, I know you've got a, a a child, and and you've told us about your dog, and you've got a husband, and now with this, so obviously it's useful having a child in the sense you can justify getting in massive quantities of uh, Cadbury's fruit and nut or any other uh, chocolate like that. Um, yeah, the danger the is child. though. Yeah. Yes, of course, for the child, for the child, uh, Cole. Um, uh, so the danger is, though, that I would probably take it from the hands of the baby because uh, once there's chocolate, it's it's very hard for, for me to not eat it all. So I have to be kind of more discerning about when it comes into my possession because once it's in my possession, the whole 200-gram bar will will go pretty pretty quick. Um, I, remember, I remember, so I, I sailed across the North Pacific. Um, I was media crew, so I kind of joined as a... Um, a writer uh, joining the clip around the world yacht race. And so we were sailing from Qingdao in in China to uh, the coast of San Francisco, California. So it's about 6,000 miles, just over 6,000 miles that we sailed over um, 30 days at sea. And it's very, very rough and very, very cold. And there is, you know, genuine objective risk that you might die. Um, and I remember there was one particular night where it had been a very difficult shift where we'd had to do sail changes and it was we got smashed about and we were dripping wet and there was no hope of um, warm or dry clothes for the next two weeks at least. And um, I thought, oh, gosh, if I, if I die now, I don't want there to be chocolate left over. And so at the end of my, at the end of our, um, our watch on, uh, you know, actually sailing, you, you kind of clamber down into the bowels of this stripped down racing yacht. And I sat on top of these sodden wet sails and it felt about three degrees and you're kind of slowly steaming some of your base layers dry. And I ate all my chocolate 
because I thought if I'm going to die, I, I want to have eaten this chocolate. Thank you very much. So and some then... people have a bucket list of things they've got to do. <laughs> Your bucket's just filled up with chocolate. You're I know, I did it though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then didn't die, so there we go. There were just a couple of hundred employees when the firm first came to the River Bourne. Now there are about 8,000 in and among the acres of specialised buildings and thousands more at the Cadbury factories in different parts of the British Commonwealth. So this is what you might call a combined operation. Factories within a factory. One must keep pace with the other. The sequence of production must be strictly governed to avoid bottlenecks. A pile-up of chocolates, for instance, all wrapped up and nowhere to go. Telling me about that uh, neatly takes us into your, your fifth your next um, wonder, uh, which will lead us into some pointers towards the the uh, the gung ho side of your character and uh, just how exciting your lifestyle is. Having mentioned sailing the Pacific, but but what's your num- what's your fifth wonder? So number five is the inaccessible pinnacle, um, which is this extraordinary pinnacle of rock on the a part of the Black Coolin on the Isle of Skye, again off the northwest coast of Scotland. It's just. It's just accident that those two things are um, the in pin and Callanish are sort of near each other. Yeah, so that's that's the abbreviation for in pin and this in and the Coolins, which are, I suppose, people know by name or they may have seen or they may have walked along uh, the Coolins in in Sky. But now the the clue to this particular bit of it, though, it's called the inaccessible pinnacle. So that's a warning to anybody who cares to take it. There's really not a place to try and get onto, but you've been on it. It was absolute hubris and and the challenge of the name. So the inaccessible pinnacle, although it being called the inaccessible pinnacle, is, it turns out, Clive, accessible. Uh with with someone such as myself, with a guide and a rope, um, uh, you know, um, elite climbers who have a very very strong head for heights, would I guess be able to climb up it? If you if you let go, you die. So or if you slip, you die. So you know, those are the those are the terms upon which you you kind of attempt to access said pinnacle. Uh, it was first it was first climbed in eighteen eighty um, when climbing was just becoming a thing. Yeah. And um, and uh, two two kind of bright young mountaineering hopes uh, got a, a local shepherd to help them climb up. Um, so, so the people like going climbing in uh, Scotland, and they they like to go on things called the Munros, which are all all the mountain tops, which are is it three thousand feet? You've got to be above? yes, that's right. So the In Pin is one of the Munros. Um, so that's one of the reasons that um, people try and scale this this kind of jagged tooth of um, of rock, and you kind of climb up the east face, which is sort of stepped, I guess, and it gets narrower and narrower. Um, so then your hands are overlapping, and if you look down, you can just see. Oh God, it it goes down and down and down. It's like Mordor. You know, you're just looking into the depths of this kind of the rocky jaws of hell itself. Um, wait, wait, wait a minute, uh, Mary, and then I, and then you abseil off the other side. Yeah, no. That's look, the, I understand the, the people who are determined to do these things and they want to bag every Munro. They've got to do this. Why did you want to do it? Because <laughs> I, mean, I know it fits in with your your lifestyle. You you take a lot of risks and very full of daring do. But what 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 made you want to climb this particular peak? So specifically, I'm a hillwalking ambassador for the British Mountaineering Council, and they uh, most are most famed for they're most known for representing uh, climbers. So they represent the Olympic climbing side of things that's going to the Olympics next year, and obviously mountaineers. But they also represent hillwalkers, and I got involved with them as a perfectly normal person who likes hill walking who happens to also be on tv and so you know there's a bit of profile there and um the guy that i work with quite closely at the bmc uh this chap called alex he phoned me up and he said um no marianne we want to make a film a short film about climbing the in pin because lots of people want to do it it's a it's a kind of a, it's a it's one of those um bucket list challenges for climbers and mountaineers and walkers. Um, But we can't send one of our climbing ambassadors because they'll make it look too easy. So we're going to send you because you'll make it look hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I've seen you do it. I've seen the the film 
Uh, you you put on a display a bit sort of. Oh, I'm not sure if I can manage this, but I oh, know no, you. Oh no, I was you genuinely just, scared. You just were trotting along there, hardly noticing the fact you might plunge to your death at any moment. No, this one, Clive, I really was gen- very very aware of the fact that I might plunge to my death. And even though I was climbing up second, so I had this amazing guide, um, this uh, woman called Louisa Reynolds, who's a mountaineering instructor, and she's you know, not quite half my height. She's, you know, five foot something and she's pretty and blonde and um, supremely friendly. And I think for a lot of, and she's an amazing mountaineer. She's an amazing instructor and she's done extraordinary climbing uh, under her own name. Um, And the thing that really struck me was that, you know, we're we're two women. And if (laughs) it's quite easy, I think, when, you know, she's kind of putting all the the rack of the kit together and sorting out the ropes and all the rest of it. And I'm standing there twiddling my thumbs, feeling very, very nervous, too nervous to eat breakfast. I thought, God, it's quite, it'd be really easy to underestimate her because she just doesn't look like any of the stereotypes of what a climber or a mountaineer looks like. But she's absolutely hard as nails. And the thing that really struck me as two women out in the mountains was that it's one of those opportunities. And I think they're not that easy to come by it's there those opportunities where how you look doesn't matter at all it's about your body is about what you do with it your body is about a tool to achieve a, a achieve an objective it's not about looking nice and well, I thought I'd, have that was say, very I'd have to say as far uplifting. as bodies are concerned so, some some tools are better than others uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and of course I think the danger in that film uh, with the, as you say two women doing it there's a certain type of man who might be looking at it saying, oh, two women, oh, I'll do it, no bother, putting on a pair of trainers and, and a, you know, a stout pair of uh, jeans, and, and they'll, they'll be lured to their deaths because they won't have planned it properly. Well, that'll but, uh, teach him. That'll, that'll serve him his own comeuppance. Um, but I think what, what hopefully what I would want it to do was for, the, for the, a woman out there, perhaps, or, or a chap who isn't, you know, the, the idiot you've just described, going, oh, God, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know. Oh, that's not for people like me. Uh, and you go, well, look, I can do it. And I'm, um, what, what was I? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the girl in the Tesco's vest. I can do it. You know, with a guide, do it properly. Don't just go up in your, you know, your best trainers. No, don't do that. I think there's a certain uh, one viewer of the um, that, that film would go, oh, that's very interesting and it's very well done, but no force on earth is going to get me <laughs> to try that. I well, think that's I okay. Power is that knowledge. Because <laughs> yeah. when we were filming together um, yeah. for the, uh, the Smithsonian programme, there were a few... Uh, bits of things that involved um, abseiling down things or climbing things. And I noticed you were allocated those because uh, everyone had plenty of faith in you because you do so many different things. There's that bit of mount- if you call that mountaineering and w- walk you've done there. You've already told us about sailing the Pacific in what sounds uh, like very hairy circumstances. You dive as well, don't you? I do, yes. So I really like scuba diving. I haven't actually done it. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, so since lockdown, diving uh, diving is... Uh, feasible as an organised activity or what have you. But uh, yeah, I, I obviously stopped diving when I became pregnant with Cole, my my son, who's now two, and just haven't, I need to kind of refresh my skills because you, it's one of those things where if you're not absolutely tip top on your skills, you, you might kill yourself or your buddy. Um, but the thing that I really enjoy scuba diving in is in, in Britain. So I'm not really one for kind of exotic tropical holidays. Partly, I think, as a jobbing freelancer in the you know previous 10 years, I haven't had that much money, I guess, to kind of go on exotic foreign holidays for weeks at a time, kind of diving beautiful tropical reefs. But I have managed to kind of a weekend in Plymouth. Um, and and the diving around the UK, it's absolutely amazing. You need a lot more kit and you do have to kind of tolerate the suffering a bit more, I think, because you kind of get cold. But I don't mind suffering. I, for, for, a, for a good outcome, I don't mind a bit of suffering. But uh, you, you're obviously a very dynamic person and, you know, prepare, you do enjoy, you know, that, that thrill of of the fear or the danger or pushing yourself to the limit in these different, I mean, I, I don't, there may be other areas that I'm, I'm just not aware of, but we, you know, diving and there's swimming, uh, there's climbing, you know, there, there's, there's quite a few things you're, you're, you're quite prepared to, to go to the edge on. I think I don't, I don't particularly like being scared. No. And I don't do things that, um, 
that are risky for the sake of the risk. I'm not kind of hungry for that experience. But I think it's really easy, isn't it, to kind of just be very comfortable and safe and a bit beige with your experiences. And I think that's the thing that I kind of get itchy feet if I'm not doing something that offers me the chance to experience something new or learn something about myself or just kind of strip back the comfort a bit so that it's a bit more immediate, I guess. This has given me a taste of British mountaineering. It's blurred the lines between walking and scrambling and climbing. And I've realised just how much there is still to explore, so many more routes to do, so many more skills to practise. I'm hooked. I'll be back. Let's do your sixth wonder. <laughs> OK, sixth wonder. And we're getting carried away, aren't we? Uh, sixth wonder is a village in the Democratic Republic of Congo called Mwandiga Twa. So what were you doing there? You must have been either abseiling in or climbing a mountain there or uh, walking up the river or paddling so down the river. What? <laughs> I'd, I'd, gone to, I'd gone to see some of the work that a charity called Toilet Twinning had been doing there. Toilet Twinning. Toilet Twinning. So the, the idea of Toilet Twinning is that um, you can twin your toilet with a toilet somewhere in the developing world and it is part of the solution to um, funding what is effectively a global sanitation disaster. Because we've still got about two and a half billion people who have nowhere to go to the toilet. And, and that means kind of nowhere safe, nowhere where the waste stays away from them. So they're not going to get sick. Their little ones aren't going to die. Elderly people aren't going to get ill. All the rest of it. And so it's, it's kind of quite a fun idea. And I came across it because I... I was doing a talk at a school and in the staff toilets, there was a little uh, certificate saying this toilet has been twinned with a toilet in and it was a toilet in Bangladesh. And I was like, oh, this is such a good idea because it kind of reminds you to appreciate the fact that, you know, you've taken the fact of the toilet and the loo roll and the hand, you know, the hand basin and the soap um, where you can wash your hands. You take it for granted. We say we flush and we forget. But actually, most people don't have that. A lot of people don't have that that kind of that luxury, that privilege. And um, so I found out about it. So I'm an ambassador for the charity now. And they said, do you want to come and see the work that we're doing in the DRC? And I said, yes, I do. Partly because I was like, how else would I ever get to visit uh, the DRC? And partly because I wanted to find out and see more of the work that they were doing. And it's an extraordinary place. Well, it's a, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's a big country, uh, the, the DRC, was the Belgian Congo and had a very unhappy colonial history. But there's, is it something like 100 million people live there? So it's it's really quite a big place. It's absolutely vast. And, and yes, it's got a very un, unhappy colonial history. It was, it was one of the most brutally um, managed uh, colonial uh, lands. Um, absolutely, you know, disgusting. Um, but the the problems of the DRC continue. It's 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 such a fertile land. It's beautiful. It should be a Garden of Eden. I mean, the land is fertile enough that you could have two full harvests. And it's the one place in the world I've travelled quite quite extensively. It's the one place in the world where I felt more than anywhere else guilty about eating because the people that I was filming with were hungry and would remain hungry. And you know the. The kind of the things, the, the images that you normally associate with, you know, live aid, pot-bellied children with no shoes and not many clothes and not much. Well, I was going to say not much hope, but that's the thing that's remarkable about the DRC. And that's why it's on my list of wonders, because despite all the insults and they're all human made uh, disasters that befall these people uh, who are living in the DRC, um, who have been displaced internally, who have been refugees, who have witnessed some of the most barbaric treatment by their own leaders and, um, you know, invaders, they still have extraordinary hope. And the ladies that I was talking to and interviewing have formed this um, health club in their village, Mwandiga Twa, which is the third Mwandiga. And it used to be this patch of um, forest and they're all... Um, repatriated refugees from Tanzania and they were originally from somewhere else in the DRC and they fled during the conflict and then they've come back and they're going, okay, here's your plot. It's it's currently 
you know, forest, good luck with that. Here's a machete, here's a bucket, off you go, you know, sink or swim. And the ladies in one Gatois said, you know, we don't have much, but we've got each other. And the thing that's important is that we teach our children these skills so that they can live healthier lives than we have. And it was just mind blowing, so humbling to see people who live in such extraordinary, perilous circumstances because of geopolitical you know, conflicts that's far beyond their control. They're like, this is the one thing we can do. We can teach our kids to wash their hands and we can dig toilets for each other. So they go around as a gang and they dig toilets because it's much easier to do it as a group than one individual. Well, I mean, that's that's very moving. But uh, just just remind me, how, how, or mind us, if I imagine scores of listeners listening in, uh, wh- where would we go to find out about uh, the toilet twinning charity that you... Uh, go to toilettwinning.org and you can twin your toilet and you can also twin a tap because obviously the global pandemic means that more and more people are aware that they need to be able to wash their hands and you can't wash hands if you don't have a tap. Uh, so you can twin your toilet, you can twin your tap and you can twin your bin as well. That was your sixth wonder, and uh, and a very interesting one it was indeed. But what's your seventh and last wonder? So my my seventh and last wonder is generally the city of Florence, but specifically a small photo booth that is next to the Academia. So the Academia is this you know amazing famous gallery with Michelangelo's David in it. But next to it is a bit of a crappy photo booth. Now, just, was... just pause before I understand this. So you're in Florence. Yeah. And there are quite a lot of potential wonders there. You might, <laughs> yeah. have, you might have had the whole of the Uffizi, or as you say, uh, David by Michelangelo. Or there's various bridges, galleries. Yeah, you can, basically, but you're going for a photo. <laughs> yeah, you go around the corner anywhere in, in, in Florence and you go, whoa. It's either, you know, an extraordinary bit of Roman architecture or some amazing piece of, you know, um, you know, the Renaissance. And um but yeah, no, this photo gallery, because because I went on holiday with Joe, my husband, and uh, we we don't often manage to go on holiday generally or together specifically because I travel quite a lot with work and so going on holiday generally involves kind of staying at home and doing the garden or something like that Uh, so we went on holiday and we had five days in Florence and I'm always quite jealous of couples or families who have the the presence of mind to have one of those beautiful sort of framed photo things on the wall where there's a photo from every year of their lives together or like this is the first day, the first hundred days of our child's life. And they've taken a lovely kind of uh, charismatic photo that captures some essence of their life together. We've never managed to do that. We kind of go, oh, yeah, that'd be a good idea. And then don't. Or we've got like a crap photo on someone's phone or an unprocessed roll of film somewhere festering away in a dusty box in the loft. So this one trip to Florence, we had five days and we said, there's this photo booth right outside the hotel we were staying. We went, let's get a photo. Let's get a photo. Let's take a photo, strip of photos every day that we're on holiday here. And we've got it framed. And when we bought our first house, we put it on the wall as you walk in. So it's kind of the the thing that that establishes the 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 warmth of our house our home and I'm rather proud of us because I mean basically it means that we don't have any photos of amazing Florence we have instead got five strip photos of me and Joe gurning like idiots um but I think it's it's partly <laughs> it's partly two fingers up to the perfect Instagram life and it also captures um something of us I think that we were more entertained by our own faces than we were by the renaissance oh. <laughs> and have you sort of extended this idea? Do you go to, you know, anywhere in the world or you happen to be together and find a photo booth and have a photograph? Because that's, you're right, though, people are more interested in photographs of you than in your photograph of David. Because that is true. you can get a better photograph of David, but only you can really supply the photograph of you. 
It's true. It's true. And I mean, we both love this. We love this thing. I think it's the thing that, you know, if, if the house were on fire, I'd grab the baby, the dog and that photo. In that order, for the record. In that and order. And your husband. Oh, no, he's, he's already outside. He's going, come on, what are you waiting for? I'm outside with my chocolate and my face cream. <laughs> oh, no, but you don't need him because you've got the photographs to remember him. Well, back. exactly. But if... If we had the presence of mind to find a photo booth in all the places we go to, then we'd be that family that I'm jealous of or that couple that I'm jealous of. No, we've only ever managed to do it once in 20 years of being together, and that's why it's special. <laughs> well, that in its way is as romantic as building uh, you know, a million-pound mausoleum for, for, for the one who goes first. Uh, so, look, uh, thank you very much, Marianne, for uh, giving uh, an insight into your um, interests in life with your various wonders, the seven wonders of the world. Um, I, I generally tried to select uh, one of the wonders, and I, th- I thought I was going to select Kalanish because uh, that's a, a wonder, and also it does reflect... Uh, something of you and your interest in archaeology and in British archaeology in particular. But but I think with your story about the village in the Congo, I'm not sure anybody else that I interview for this series of interviews is likely to have a, a village in the Congo. Uh, and perhaps there's the, the, the twinned loo. Uh, the, your loo and the loo twinned in that village is the aspect of that I think I should um, hang on to. As as the wonder of the world that you've uh, brought to the the wonders that we're thinking about, I hope I hope you feel that represents you well enough. I I think that's a, that's a perfect selection. Uh, yeah, it, it really does. All right, and uh, unfortunately, it doesn't represent your your wider your just sort of uh, everyday interests in the archaeology of Britain and uh, and the sites that we can find in Scotland, England, everywhere else. Uh, but to find that out, we can uh, people can look at your book, Secret to Britain, or indeed watch the television programmes you make with uh, sometimes incompetent uh, co-presenters. But thank you for joining me on this uh, podcast. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is a Stakhanov production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.